right, if you have your Bibles, I'm sure that you do, um, if you turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, um, we're going to be picking up where I last left off um, in this epistle, the last time I had the privilege to preach here, um, I think back in May. Um, and last time I had the privilege to preach, we finished out the first chapter of Colossians. We, we talked about kind of the grand theme of Colossians being simply in Christ alone. We'd, we'd hinted around the occasion for the letter, um, Paul's letter to the church in Colossae being this presence of false teaching um, that had shaken the faith of some, had um, tempted some of them to um, shift from the foundation of the gospel to find um, Christ insufficient for their salvation, insufficient for their sanctification and their perseverance, their, their final salvation. Um, we saw that the hope of Christ was the firm, fruitful foundation for a fully pleasing life to God. Through the first 14 verses, the introduction to Paul's letter, he's giving them their hope that they cannot shift from. We saw in the next five verses this two-part hymn of Christ's preeminence, that Christ is the head of all creation because he's created it all, he sustains it all. He's the head of the church, um, the firstborn from the dead because he is... Um, the beginning of our salvation, um, we saw this kind of paradox of perseverance that Christ is sufficient for the believer's assurance and salvation, that we must not fall away, but that in Christ we have all we need, all he has given us to not fall away. And then lastly, we saw the ministry of Christ, really Paul describing his own ministry to the Colossians. So, Paul has labored through this first chapter to sort of reestablish the foundation of the Colossians' hope in the perfect work, promises, and preeminent lordship of Jesus Christ. He's, he's further reminded the Colossians of how Christ's work has been applied in their own lives personally through the gospel of Christ, the word of the truth. And having given the Colossians a glimpse of the glories of Christ that would... Um, take their eyes and, and their minds off of their own insufficiency and put them on a Christ sufficiency, take their eyes off of themselves and put them on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, he also introduced and characterized his own ministry, revealing ultimately that Christ was caring for them through the apostle and through the ministers that he had given them in the local church body. And ministry, we saw, was not... Lordship was not was not just leadership, it was service. It was suffering service. It's a thankless um, but rewarding labor of love that Paul defined at the end of chapter 1 as a struggle. And, and so here as we enter the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Colossians, the apostle continues to define and to, and to describe this struggle in particularly in such a way that the Colossians would not only be encouraged that he was struggling on their behalf, but so that they would be challenged and convicted to emulate his struggle, to struggle in the same way. That there is a, a conflict that is inherent to the Christian life. It, it's not a passive affair. We don't just receive the benefits of Christ and then um, just lay inactive until glory. So I'm going to read the text, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to, we're going to dig into it. I'm actually going to back up to Colossians 1, verse 24, so we can have some immediate context. It says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, 
the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Father, I thank you for this time that we have together this morning. What a privilege that it is to worship you and your word together with your saints, your body, God, trophies of your grace that you have called according to your purposes. Lord, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, work in me and through me today, that I would speak boldly and clearly, accurately of the things of God. Lord, we did not gather together today to hear from me, but to hear from you. I pray that we would hear your word, that we would respond to it in obedience and faith um, by your grace and by your calling. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So as we enter chapter 2, the fact that Paul spends the next several sentences on this concept of struggle, um, just as he's begun to talk about it in verse 29, the struggle or conflict, the word is agonizomai in verse 29, in verse one of chapter two, it's a gone. It's from where we get the word agony from in the English. There's this agonizing struggle, this agonizing, excruciating, painful effort that takes place in the Christian life. And it might strike us as odd in a letter that Paul has clearly written to encourage the Colossian saints that he uses this terminology. After all, one of the main points of chapter one is what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. What he has done that we could not work for or earn ourselves. And the transition here seems a little bit odd, a little bit contradictory. Yet Paul has not really changed the subject at all. He's he's continuing on with the discussion he began in the first chapter. And really, we actually begin to see here in the second chapter the reason why he wrote the letter in the first place. We've hinted around it throughout the first chapter and we finally get to it here. And that's that's false teaching, plausible arguments, persuasive speech. This kind of faulty reasoning that might mislead people away from Christ. And opponents of Christ here are are those who had infiltrated the Colossian church, had begun shaking the faith of the young Colossian saints, like we've seen, insisting on doctrines and practices which undermine the sufficiency of Christ or undid the Colossians' assurance of salvation in Christ alone. And I think based on Paul's response in the book of Colossians as a whole, we, we kind of see a twofold effect of false teaching here in Colossae. And really, it's a twofold effect of false teaching in every church, I would say, regardless of what the teaching is, regardless of where the church is located geographically or in time. We, we typically see two things, I think, generally, and that's division, distraction, or both. 
And inherent in division is deception. But firstly, false teaching brings division when it deceives some within the church who turn on their fellow congregants, who insist on beliefs which are contrary to the faith once delivered to the saints. Um, sides form in the church. It, it may divide the leadership and leaders pick sides. It, it um, always brings division. There's backbiting and gossip and slander. They sow discord and discontent among the believers who were once perfectly content with their faith, perfectly content with their leaders and their fellow saints, perfectly content with their savior. It breeds an unholy lust for the wrong things. And Paul has warned the church of these things before. In the book of Acts, he warns the the elders in Ephesus. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. In Romans 16, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, persuasive speech, plausible arguments, they deceive the hearts of the naive. In Second Timothy, he says, For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. We're aware of people like this. We've encountered people like this in our own body and other bodies that we've had experience with. And, and I would say yet there's a second equally serious and yet more indirect effect of false teaching, which often passes unnoticed because it's, it's more subtle. And that's distraction. That is, we as believers or as ministers or as a congregation can become so fixated on the controversies that false teaching or false teachers or ungodly men or, or leaders or governments create, that our eyes are drawn away from a right focus upon Christ. And we instead become consumed with responding in ways that are not only ineffective, but ultimately have a weakening impact upon us as the church. Our undue attention to the wrong things detracts from the focus that we should have on the right things, or, or the, rather the right one who is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Such is Paul's intent when he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy, and he says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. In Titus, he says, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, discussions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So we see in this passage in Colossians 2, a description, or rather in Titus, of one who brings division to a church, but also of one who distracts with foolish controversies. Controversies, dissensions, and quarrels, which ultimately profit nothing and offer nothing of lasting worth. In essence, they make Christians ineffective by drawing their focus away from Christ. From drawing their focus away from meaningful things and insisting that they spend time on trivialities. So the essence of Paul's argument, then, is, is that even though the church has ultimately achieved victory, or that Christ, rather, has ultimately achieved victory over all spiritual and earthly powers and earned salvation completely and for all time for his elect people, there is a very real conflict in which we must participate every day of the Christian life and a struggle which we must endure in the Christian life. And the conflict here is not so much against false teachers themselves, 
but rather false and worldly teachings that bring division to the body of Christ and take up our focus. They undermine our joy and our assurance in what we've received in Christ. So Paul gives one strategy in Colossians 2, one struggle, one type of resisting that seeks to prevent both effects of false teaching in the church. And in telling the Colossian Christians and us as the biblical readers about how great a struggle he has, he is showing us how we are to struggle, how we are to resist, how we are to approach conflict that is inevitable to the Christian life. And I think as we've already seen in Paul's approach to Colossians thus far, um, all of chapter 1 is, is, de- is devoted to one thing. And this is Paul's primary resistance to the wrong ideas. It's an insistence upon what is true in Christ. So as a pastor, Paul's great struggle is on behalf of the other believers. The apostle had never met the Colossians or those in Laodicea or Hierapolis, and yet he feels a responsibility toward them as a minister of Christ. His conflict is great. It's agonizing because of how much he cares for them. And we learned in our previous times in Colossians, that Paul's care for the little Colossian church is not because the Colossian church can offer him anything, but it's because Christ loves the Colossian church. And as a minister of Christ, he loves Christ and he feels a responsibility toward them. So we know Paul's motivation to struggle on behalf of the Colossians here, why it's agonizing, but we haven't really defined what the struggle is. How does Paul struggle? What's the nature of it? I think firstly we see here in this text that Paul's nature or Paul's struggle is by nature a spiritual struggle. Look with me at verse one. It says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. In verse 29, he says, for this, I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. He's talking about proclamation of the word. It's explained as stewarding the word of God, proclaiming Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. We saw last time that when Paul speaks of warning, he's referring referring to warning or admonishing someone concerning their behavior, the attitudes of their heart. He and his fellow servants, his fellow ministers, they warn the members of God's household in a way that would call them to repentance for their sin, both conduct in the church and outside of the church in the world. They're, they're warning the saints to keep a close watch on their own conduct and on the state of their hearts to repent not just of the sins that Paul would be able to see, but that no one sees. The sins that are inherent to their own hearts, their own attitudes before God. And the minister does this by teaching all of God's word, even the correctives and the rebukes, applying them to those in his care. So Paul warns those in his care so that they would not be deceived by the deceitfulness of their own sin. That they would take care lest in any of them there be an evil, unbelieving heart causing them to fall away from the living God. That's the way it's put in Hebrews. Secondly, the minister serves the saints by teaching them in all wisdom. Teaching here refers to the faith. The doctrines of the faith once delivered to all the saints. The doctrines of Christ or the theology of Christ. They address the heart as ministers, but they also engage the mind. They teach the word of God accurately, instructing the saints about themselves and about the world, and most importantly, about God and his gospel. So a minister that will not take care to teach the saints the doctrines of Christ is not truly a minister of Christ. This is how they're identified. 
The minister's teaching of the word is what fills the saints with all spiritual wisdom and understanding as Paul has prayed on their behalf in chapter one. So that they may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Without a right understanding of God, we can never hope to please God because we will not know him as he is. We will not know what he wants from us, what he desires, what pleases him. So there's there's no real minister of Christ that does not believe that doctrine matters, that teaching all of the saints, all of the doctrines of God matters. Our, our worship of God, our lives of holiness, our conduct as believers will only ever increase so much as our understanding of God increases in his word. So that's the sense that we already have of Paul struggling, his ministering of the word on their behalf, even though he's not there present with them. That's, that's part of why he's writing this, this letter. It's ministering with the word of God on their behalf, warning and teaching them in wisdom. But there's another key means of struggling that Paul gives um, in the book of Colossians, and that's prayer. The apostle uses the same word, struggling, um, in chapter 4, verse 12 of Colossians, when he talks about Epaphras, who is one of you. A servant of Christ Jesus greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. And the same imagery is given in a parallel passage in Ephesians, um, chapter 3, starting in verse 14, where he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So as a minister of Christ, Paul struggles for the saints in proclaiming the word of Christ and them, warning them, teaching them in all wisdom that they will be filled with the knowledge of Christ. But as a fellow believer who can't be present with them physically, with all those who have not seen him face to face, Paul intercedes for them in prayer. That is how he struggles. He earnestly prays that they would be strengthened, encouraged, indwelt with Christ, rooted and grounded in love, that they would be able to comprehend the fullness of God's love in Christ, a love which surpasses knowledge, and that they themselves would be filled with all the fullness of God. That's an amazing prayer. I mean, if I knew that someone like that was was praying that prayer for me regularly, I would be encouraged immediately. And ultimately, encouragement is the intended result of Paul's spiritual struggle for the saints. Look with me at the beginning of verse 2 in Colossians 2. So Paul is a minister. He's, he's proclaiming the words to them. He's laboring in prayer for them. All that they may be encouraged. That their hearts may be encouraged. The word here for encouraged is parakaleo in the Greek. Meaning strengthened, comforted. Prepared for conflict. And that's really the sense in which Paul is using it here. Paul's preaching of the word of the gospel and his prayer for their sake is so that they would be strengthened internally. In Ephesians, that through the Holy Spirit they would be made strong in their inner being. That they would be made of strong minds and prepared for spiritual conflict. The believers would have strong beliefs against false ideas. That they would have strong emotions against the anxiety 
that deception and distraction produce. When the mind is filled with biblical truth and reinforced with sound doctrine, when it's fully assured of the love of Christ, it will not be easily deceived or distracted. And in this word parakaleo, strengthened in other places in the scripture, it, it might be familiar to us for a couple of reasons. It's the word used in Paul's prayer to the saints in Ephesus when he prays that he may grant you to be strengthened, strengthened parakaleo through his spirit. In your inner being. And second, the word is related to parakletos. And that's where the title paraclete comes from. Comforter. Strengthener. It's the Holy Spirit who is the encourager. The strengthener. The comforter. It is the Spirit who grants strength in the inner being. So Paul's struggle is by nature a spiritual one. Because he is only able to struggle in the strength and power of the Holy Spirit. And the result of his struggle, the encouragement of the saints, is itself a work of the Holy Spirit. It's no coincidence that the two ways in which Paul apparently struggles for the Colossians here, in the Word and in prayer, those are the two primary ministries of the Holy Spirit to the church. Reminding the church of the things of Christ, the doctrines of Christ, and then interceding for them with groanings too deep for words. So, because this is, in a sense, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we've seen, we've seen the ministry of the Father, right? Delivering us from darkness, transferring us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of His beloved Son. We've seen the ministry of Christ through the apostles and through the prophets, through the ministers in the local body, through ransoming us and redeeming us. Here is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The, the Trinity of God is present here in Paul's letter to the Colossians. And because this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit, to neglect the Word and to neglect prayer in our own lives and to neglect and struggling in these things for the sake of our other saints and in the fellowship is, in a sense, to resist the work of the Holy Spirit, to resist the work of God. And that's a serious conclusion. If we want to keep in step with the Spirit, as Paul puts it in Galatians, If we want to be a part of what God is doing, ongoing in the church, we will be devoted to the Word of God. Not just for ourselves, but to minister with the Word of God to each other. To let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly, addressing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, giving thanks to the Father. And we will be devoted to real, meaningful, intercessory prayer for the other saints. See, the, the, the phrase, I'll pray for you, is not just meant to be a Christian greeting or a Christian salutation. It's meant to be a promise. It's meant to be obedience to the work of God. It's meant to be a commitment to the life and health of the church. And that's why those things that take our minds and our attention away from the word of Christ and from time with the Lord in prayer are the enemies of the Christian's comfort in the spirit and encouragement in Christ. They make us weaker. They distract us and discourage us. They make us ineffective as followers of Christ. And I think it's low-hanging fruit, but I can think of no better example than the constant barrage of news and social media that we consume every day. Are you discouraged and depressed, Christian? I can tell you that those things will not help you. If you're looking for Christian encouragement... Um, The news is not something you want to turn to. 
They'll only make your condition worse. You won't be encouraged by the constant content of criticism and outrage and controversy. Those things are not worth your time that you have that should belong to the Lord. Probably one of the most painful quotes I've heard in my Christian life is John Piper. He said, one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not for lack of time. How how true and, and how painful that is for us. I mean, do you want to be encouraged in Christ? Do you want to be strengthened in the faith? Do you want to be a source of encouragement for other believers? Then put down your phone and take up your Bible. Turn off your computer and and bow your knees before the Father, for whom every family on heaven and earth is named. Request things of God. Make your request known to God. Cast your cares upon Him because He cares for you. Those are the commands that we've been given. We don't lack people in the church sharing facts or theories or conspiracies or whatever you want to call them on Facebook. One of the present pressing needs of the church is not more pot stirrers online. There's no Facebook argument that's so important that it trumps the means that we have been given by God for Christian strength and Christian encouragement. And ultimately, if you're wanting to be an encouragement to the other saints, I'm not saying we all approach social media saying, wow, I'm going to waste my time. I'm going to make myself depressed. I'm going to add to the controversy online. Oftentimes when we're there and we're sharing and we're posting, it's because we think it's needed, right? We think we need to be a bold, a bold voice for Christ online. But ultimately, what do you think will benefit your fellow believers or even unbelievers? What do you think will benefit yourself spiritually the most? 30 minutes, an hour on Facebook sharing posts or an hour in prayer for their spiritual needs. Our spiritual struggle, the spiritual struggle that Paul gives here is in one sense a conflict against the apathetic, the lackadaisical practices of our own spiritual disciplines. Our time in prayer is not only a means by which God is ordained to answer for the benefit of others. That, that alone would be reason for us to come to God in prayer. He is ordained to answer prayers. God loves to answer godly prayers as we pray according to the will of God. But it's also a time that we take our eyes and our minds off of ourselves and we fix them upon Christ. That we, as we seek to pray according to the will of God, we become more in tune to the will of God. We become more conformed to the image of Christ. Prayer is in one sense a means of our own sanctification. As we obey the Lord, as we spend time meditating upon the word of God and praying that word back to him. Paul's struggle is a spiritual struggle. And secondly, as we look back at verse 2, it's also a corporate struggle. He says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. To reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So, so be encouraged is the main verb of this verse. It's, it's the purpose of Paul's struggle and strength and comfort through the Holy Spirit's work in the word and prayer. But Paul explains the idea of what it means to be encouraged in Christ with this participle, being knit together in love. This is the way in which we're encouraged. The way in which we're strengthened by the Holy Spirit. Knit together in the Greek is simbibazo. Unite, hold, or bring together. It's this concept, this terminology that's used in Ephesians and Colossians, speaking of the uniting of the body of Christ under the head. 
who is Christ. It's the unity and the interdependence of the church which shares a common bond and a dependence upon Jesus as head of the body. So so to be strengthened in heart, as Paul describes it, is to be knit together with the other saints. And knit together in love. This word for love is agape, God's love, Christ's love. God's love for us, the love of Christ for us, the love that we have for God and Christ, the love of Christ that we show to each other. This is how we're knit together. This is how we're strengthened. The unity of the church doesn't come from common interests or shared hobbies. It doesn't come from shared political views. It doesn't come from demographic similarities or common ethnicity or culture. It's not as if there are separate bodies of Christ. As if there's a a white church and a black church and a Native American church and an Indian church. Unity doesn't come from socioeconomic status. It's not organizational. It's organic. The church is knit together in love when Christ is proclaimed because believers have all experienced the same love in Christ. They've received the same eternal life. They've come to Christ the same way by grace Through faith, they have the same baptism. They've received the same Holy Spirit. As Paul puts it later in Colossians, here in the church, in the body of Christ, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. We have a a connection to the other believers that transcends all worldly distinctives. And really, spiritually speaking, we have more in common with believers that we have never met than our own unbelieving family members. Such was the case for Paul, who's praying for the believers in Colossae and Laodicea and all those whom he's never met. He's praying for them because the Holy Spirit of God was indwelling in him and was interceding for them. He loved them and longed for them because Christ loved them. And he loved Christ. And we have experienced this in our own Christian lives. When we feel compelled out of love, out of love for the other saints, out of love for Christ, to pray for the saints in Africa or Afghanistan. We, we hurt when they're persecuted. We rejoice with their victories, with the advancement of the church over there. We have a common fellowship in Christ and therefore we love We who love Christ labor for them in prayer. So to Paul, encouragement in the spirit and maturity in Christ are only possible for a believer that is connected to the other saints. So in one sense, a part of the body which is not connected to the rest of the body is also not connected to the head. To willingly separate from other believers and to live outside of the life of church, life of the church is not only to demonstrate a lack of maturity, It's really to demonstrate a lack of faith in Christ, a lack of dependence upon Christ. There's no such thing as a lone wolf Christian. There's no human body that has one hand and a head. It it doesn't work. We are meant to be together underneath the head, and we are meant to grow up into Christ together. And I think there's a common occurrence, especially in in our Western churches, because we have the freedom and the options to do so, Um, and maybe even especially on the reformed on the fringes of reformed churches i mean we'll get we'll get visitors from different places um we'll get people that we're acquainted with talk to us and say you know well there's there's no solid church there's no reformed church there's no london baptist confession of 1689 church around me so i just don't go as if that could be a valid option 
And I know that, you know, the circumstances are different from person to person and town to town, but often it's not that there are no genuine churches around the person. It's that that church does not fit all of their preferences, all of their secondary or tertiary doctrinal positions, um, all of their preferences for worship, their preferences for, for music style. People leave churches over the most trivial of things. They major on minors. They major on minor details and obscure doctrines. And really, if, if your position on eschatology or, or the spiritual gifts or, or something like head coverings causes you to separate from the other saints, I would submit to you that you're not nearly mature, as mature as you think you are. You're not, merely, you're not nearly as spiritual as you think you are, as biblical as you think you are. Some consider themselves too discerning or too mature to be subject to a local church submitted to Christ's ministers. And Paul has the opposite idea of such individuals. It's only by being knit together in love with fellow believers that one is strengthened in the faith. I mean, how can you obey Christ's commands to love the saints if you're never around the other saints? How can you fulfill your Christian responsibilities to minister with the word to other believers, to encourage and edify and exercise your spiritual gifts given for the good of the body if you are disconnected from the body? You can't. You can't obey Christ. And if you can't obey Christ, you cannot be sanctified. You cannot grow in maturity. You will not. And that's why gathering together with the other believers is something that's worth dying over. It's literally a matter of life and death spiritually. It's literally that important. It would be so much easier for believers overseas suffering fierce persecution to refrain from meeting for the sake of safety. And yet they don't. Why? Because it's their unity in Christ, their mutual encouragement in Christ. It's worth every struggle. It's worth every risk to them. And ultimately, maturity is the goal of the struggle. We see that Paul here, it's a spiritual struggle through the ministry of the word and in prayer. It's a corporate struggle together as we grow spiritually into Christ. And it's a struggle toward maturity. Look back with me at this third verse. Or rather, beginning halfway through the second. It says, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's starting to become clear to us by the time we hit verse 3 that it, Paul's struggle is really not against something. It's, it's for something. right? It, it's a struggle against things in that you're trying to overcome obstacles to the unity and the maturity of Christ. But ultimately, the goal of the struggle is a positive one. It's, it's maturity in Christ. Paul's urgent desire is that they would have assurance in a full understanding of the gospel, uh, of Christ's work for them, that they would know Christ, who is God's mystery, revealed to them. And Paul reassures them that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He doesn't say that these treasures are hidden because they're unknowable. Or because they're being kept from the saints. He uses the word hidden here in the same way that he uses the word mystery. As something ready to be revealed. Something that is meant to be revealed to them. 
Because these treasures are meant to be revealed. Jesus Christ here is like a mine. He's, he's filled with inexhaustible wealth and spiritual treasure and greater understanding of God and His ways and His will if we will but take the time to explore. If we will but take the time to dig into Christ. And it also speaks to Christ as all-surpassing in worth. He is most precious. He is most valuable. In Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I think of a parallel to to one of Christ's parables in Matthew 13, where Christ compares the kingdom of God to a treasure hidden in a field. A man goes and he finds it, and in his joy, he covers it back up and he sells everything he has to buy that field. It doesn't say that he did it out of his shrewdness. It doesn't say that he did it to turn a profit. It says, in his joy... He went and he sold everything he had. He forsook everything that was previously in his life to obtain that treasure. When when Christ has been revealed to us, when we taste of the goodness of Jesus, when we understand that it's in Christ that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found, there is nothing that we will value more than Christ. No possession or idea that we will not gladly forsake for the joy of having Christ. And that's really what Paul is expressing here. And that's his primary apologetic against false teaching. His primary motivation. It's longing to see the saints mature in Christ, knowing that He is enough. That when we have Him, He is enough. Christ is everything. It says, in Christ is all wisdom, all experimental or practical truth. You want to know how to live? You want to know how then shall we live? Look to Christ's example. Want to know God's will for your life? What was God's goal in Christ? What was Christ's goal submitted to the Father while He walked this earth? That's God's will for your life. You want to know how to be a good husband? Learn about how Christ loved the church. You want to know how Christians are to respond to unjust government? Look to Christ's faithful endurance at His trial on the cross. In Christ is all knowledge, all special or doctrinal truth. Jesus is God's fullest revelation given to us. God has nothing more to say to us than what is found in Jesus Christ. In Jesus is our doctrine complete. In Jesus is our full understanding of everything that God has ever given to us to know. And I think the best picture about Paul's Paul's depiction of Christ here is that he is a mine of treasures that is unfathomable. There's no bottom to this mine. There's no bottom to this well, this repository of all treasure, of all wisdom, of all knowledge. We can dig and dig and find more and more treasures of God in Christ for eternity and always find something new. There's always something new for us in Christ. There will always be enough in Christ for us. There's always going to be enough knowledge, always going to be enough wisdom the way Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, he says, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. All wisdom, all divine wisdom, all righteousness, everything about obedience to God, perfect morality, all sanctification, everything we need to obey God, all redemption, everything we need to secure our salvation is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
He puts it this way in Ephesians 1. He says, blessed be God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Christ, every spiritual blessing. See, ultimately, in response to the false teaching and the plausible arguments and the things of this world and people's false ideas and false ideologies that offer wisdom outside of Christ, that try to deceive you and distract you and and steal your affections and occupy your focus, hold you captive, Paul offers only one thing in return. He offers only one thing, one thing against all of these other um, apparent sources of knowledge, these sources of wisdom. He offers one thing, and really Christianity offers one thing of value, and that's Christ. If you have Christ, you have everything. If you don't have Christ, you have nothing. You have no understanding, no knowledge, no wisdom, no morality, no hope, no peace, no future, no love, no truth, no rest. You have nothing if you don't have Christ. I love how MacArthur puts it. He just puts it bluntly. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And the minute you try to add anything to Christ, you have nothing again. That equation only works one way. It's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. When we add to what it means to be a Christian, a follower of Christ, we dilute the meaning of it. When we pollute the church's identity and mission in the world, we are adulterating Christ's bride. We're not a political interest group. We're not a government watchdog. We're not a corporation. We're not a non-profit. We, as God's people, Christ's body, the Holy Spirit's temple, have one charge, and that's to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. Nothing but Christ. We are strengthened by Christ and Him crucified. Encouraged and comforted by that reality and that reality alone. And that's ultimately why Paul's struggle, his spiritual struggle, this corporate struggle we have toward maturity in Christ is ultimately a struggle over sufficiency. Look with me in verse 4, Colossians 2. It says, I say this, everything he's just said here about Christ, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. And I think it's significant here. You know, I've hinted at the occasion for Paul's letter the last few sermons, but really, verse 4 is the first time in the book of Colossians that Paul explicitly addresses the subject of false teaching. And I'm not trying to make an argument from silence, as if, you know, Paul didn't address it in chapter 1, so it must not be important. But I think we can make an argument from the structure of Paul's writing as to the priority that we have here. There is a reason Paul does not even mention false teaching specifically until after he has powerfully presented the person and work of Christ in all of his authority, in all of his supremacy and sufficiency. And that's because a proper focus upon the riches of Christ must come before any meaningful response to false teaching. Plausible arguments which mislead are only exposed when they are compared to the word of the truth in Christ. So the point is that Christ, the truth, as the source of wisdom and knowledge, is the only real refutation of false teaching. The only way to prevent plausible arguments, taking prey upon the flock, 
from holding sway over our hearts and minds. If we dig deep into the wealth of riches in Christ, we will feel no need or no temptation to seek wisdom elsewhere. And if you were to look at um, our social media timelines as Christians often, or to hear some of our conversations, to listen to Christian news cycles or podcasts, or maybe read some of the most recent Christian books concerning the plausible arguments of our day, you might think that the totalitarian governments or, or critical race theory, that those things were the biggest threats to believers today. And they're not. I'm, I'm not saying they aren't threats. I'm not saying they aren't false teaching. I'm not saying the responses to them are, not, are, are bad or, or were unnecessary. But ultimately, they're not the biggest threat to the health and unity of the church. And really, the plausible arguments mentioned by Paul were not the biggest threat to the, the unity and maturity of the Colossian church in the Apostles' day. Paul's struggle, his spiritual struggle, was for the hearts and minds of believers, and the root of the issue was a lack of assurance, a weakness of faith, a flagging devotion to Christ. False teaching of any type can only gain a foothold in a heart that is internally dissatisfied with Christ, that is internally unassured of Christ, that is not wholly satisfied in Christ. It's the internal dispositions of our own hearts, the deceitfulness of our own sin, the proclivity that we have to lean on our own understanding that is the greatest threat to the maturity of the church, the greatest threat to our own spiritual maturity individually. There will be no shortage of wolves and false brothers seeking to enter the church from now until Jesus returns. We have no reasonable expectation of false teaching ever ceasing in this life. We have no reasonable expectation of governments ever stopping their persecution of the saints in this life. But we can be made ready for conflicts through the encouragement of our hearts being knit together in love by the Holy Spirit through the word of Christ in prayer. That is what we can be made ready for. So how do we ultimately learn how to address and respond to the situations and responsibilities of this life? Only the wisdom and knowledge found in Christ. So when the apostle wants to refute the false teachings in Colossae, the Gnostics or the Docetists or the Judaizers or the pagan angel worshippers, he doesn't systematically list their errors and name the false teachers. You really won't find much of that in the scriptures. I'm not saying some of those things aren't necessary, but they're not what's ultimately most important. He powerfully proclaims the true and the good in Christ alone in such a way that every falsehood is automatically refuted. And in doing so, he brings encouragement. So it's, it's a twofold thing. He's refuting false teaching and he's bringing encouragement to the saints. He doesn't bring anxiety or anger. He imparts unity and love common in Christ, not disunity or distraction. He doesn't become preoccupied with foolish controversies. He's too preoccupied with Christ to fall prey to them. And he would have the Colossians so preoccupied with Christ that they can't even comprehend becoming preoccupied with something else. So our, our greatest concern as Christians today Hear me on this. I'm trying to be balanced, but our greatest concern should not be vaccination status. It shouldn't be mask mandates or, or critical race theory. It shouldn't be school curriculum or wars, rumors of wars. Those things will continue from now until Jesus returns. 
It should be our personal conformity to the image of Jesus Christ and the spiritual well-being of our fellow saints. Are you growing in Christ? Are you being knit together in love with the fellow saints? Are you becoming more holy, more obedient to God's word? If the answer to those questions is no, you have little business being concerned with anything else. You have little business being concerned with critical race theory if you are addicted to pornography. You have little business being concerned with errors in school curriculum if you are not growing in personal holiness. The way to resist the plausible arguments which would lead some away from finding all they need in Christ is not to respond with equally plausible arguments. It's not to respond with persuasive speech, eloquent words, or worldly wisdom. It's to proclaim Christ as all-sufficient and all-satisfying. If all we ever proclaim is the badness of false teaching, the badness of, of mass mandates or governments, the injustice of forced vaccines, the wickedness of critical race theory, the social gospel, but we never proclaim the goodness and the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, we have missed it as a church. We've missed it because Christ is everything. And really, in a sense, this was the very error of the church in Ephesus. When we look at Christ's letter to them in Revelation, right? The Ephesians excelled in refuting false teaching. They were, they were known for it. They had resisted those who had claimed to be apostles and yet are not. They had hated the work of the Nicolaitans, which Christ also hates. But Christ had this against them, that they had left their first love. That they had left their first love. They had become so polemical that they forgot about the purpose of their defense in the first place. They no longer thought of Christ or spoke of Christ or or treasured and loved Christ as they should. And that would be a terrible thing to happen to us, to happen to any church. I'm not arguing for a mere Christianity. That, that neglects delivering the full counsel of God's word. I'm saying the full counsel of God's word is found in Christ. The height and length and the depth and the breadth of everything God has ever said, all that God has revealed to us and all that we need, every longing of our souls is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. His, his perfect, full human and, and fully divine person, His amazing and mysterious incarnation and virgin birth, His humble, sacrificial, faithful life, ministry, and death in our place, His victorious resurrection, His exalted ascension, His ceaseless intercession and his impending return for he is coming soon if those truths do not take up our thoughts and take up our minds and and take up our conversations there is something deeply wrong with our hearts when it comes to christ those things must consume us those things must become our identity for we have died and our lives are hidden with christ in god it is no longer we who live but christ who lives in us Those are the things that must consume us. Look with me at verse 5. It says, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Perhaps one problem today in our current Christian context is, is that there is so much in the way of lamenting the current state of our culture And so little in the way of rejoicing over the advancement of the kingdom of God. 
So little in the way of rejoicing and celebrating what God is doing in the church and in the world. And I may, um, I may offend certain branches of eschatology here when I say this, but Christ's kingdom is not of this world and Christ's kingdom suffers no setbacks. It will never suffer a setback. It absolutely will not. That is not the nature of God's kingdom. It is always advancing. That our culture is going to hell in a handbasket is not an indictment upon the church. She will persevere. Christ's kingdom and God's gospel are always succeeding according to the sovereign plans of God and the hearts of God's chosen people. The early church, the church that Christ had, had formed and that the apostles walked in, they had never known political victory. They never experienced legal protection. They daily suffered intense persecution. And yet Paul is here rejoicing to see their good order and the firmness of their faith in Jesus Christ. The metric we use to gauge the effectiveness of the church cannot be the conduct of unbelievers. It cannot. It must be the holiness and maturity of the church. I mean, do you think when Christians are gathering in Afghanistan right now, When they gather together when they're able, do they spend their time discussing the Taliban? I'm not trying to lay it on too thick here, but I would almost guarantee you they don't. They spend their time proclaiming Christ. They don't have time for anything else. They may not have tomorrow. What do they spend their limited time together on? It is worshiping and proclaiming Christ. And more than that, the most amazing thing about that whole situation overseas is that in every report that I've read from the Christians over there, they are rejoicing. They're rejoicing. They are daily being slaughtered for their faith. They're driven from their homes. They're separated from their families. And yet they praise our Lord. Christ's kingdom is experiencing no setback in Afghanistan. They are conquering in Christ's name. They are overcoming by the word of Christ and by the word of their testimony. And brothers and sisters, though it may not seem like it here in the West, we don't have time for anything else either. We don't. The day of salvation is at hand. We have nothing better than Christ on which to let our minds dwell. Nothing sweeter than Christ for our lips to proclaim. Nothing more pressing than the coming judgment of Christ upon the living and the dead. We must be ready for the day of our Lord. Our hearts strengthened to persevere in sure and coming persecution. Our hands ready to let go of everything in our lives that is temporary. There's one thing that matters in this life above all. One thing that satisfies. One source of wisdom and knowledge and understanding. One person worthy of our thoughts and our attention and our devotion. One king who reigns, even now, at the right hand of God the Father. And his name is Jesus Christ. If we want to be of benefit to the other saints, if we want to grow in maturity in our own faith, this is the way in which we will struggle. This is the way that Paul struggled. This is the way he wanted the Colossians to struggle. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, not even against false teachers themselves. Our struggle is not against political parties or earthly authorities. Our struggle is against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our struggle is spiritual. Christ's kingdom is literal and spiritual. It is literal because it's spiritual. 
Our struggle is against the coldness of our own hearts and the deceitfulness of our own sin. What can truly threaten our comfort and strength and encouragement in Christ is not physical, but spiritual. And that's where our struggle must be. So therefore, our tactics are not of the flesh. We can get every vaccine mandate or mask mandate, every unjust policy repealed. We can put a Republican or a Libertarian or a Christian whatever in every political office of the land. We can outlaw abortion and homosexuality, pass every biblical law that we want. We can make the entire world conservative and nominally Christian, and it will still be prepared for fire. This world will still be passing away, and those people will still be damned unless they come to a saving knowledge and assurance of Christ. What really matters during this short time that we have on earth, and I want to be balanced. I'm not arguing that God's word does not speak on anything in our culture, anything in in our political sphere. But it doesn't matter ultimately how much earthly ground we gain as Christians if we are not proclaiming Christ and growing together in his image. Maturity in Christ is what mattered most to Paul. And this can be achieved in the midst of any earthly circumstance. It will be achieved in the midst of any earthly circumstance by the power of Christ through his Holy Spirit who is working in us and in the world through the proclamation of the word and the faithful intercessory prayer of his saints. His kingdom is not of this world. This world is passing away. But his kingdom will never pass away. It will never pass away. His kingdom advances, his gospel transforms, and Jesus will never turn from crushing the works of Satan under his feet. He will always save. And he will save you this morning. If you are finding yourself trusting in your own works, your own worldly possessions, your own plans, if you find yourself taking pride in yourself, as Justin talked about this morning, if you do not depend upon God for everything, you depend upon him for nothing. You must depend upon him today. And you can, you can throw yourself on his goodness and his kindness toward us, which is meant to lead you to repentance. You can trust in his ability and his willingness to save you, his, his ability and his willingness to give you his righteousness by faith in his finished work. You can trust that he will never turn you away, never leave you or forsake you, And you can trust that he will return to judge the living and the dead for the deeds that they have done in the body. This world cannot escape that judgment. And neither can you. But for us who are being saved, it is a source of joy and encouragement, not one of dread. We have a struggle ahead of us as Christians. A struggle against the coldness and inward dispositions of our own hearts. A struggle together that we have toward maturity in Christ, but we also have a sure salvation, a short time of suffering and an eternal weight of glory ready to be revealed to us, a quick pain and an eternal satisfaction. May we not lose sight of that fact together as we struggle toward our maturity in Christ. If you'd bow with me. Father, I thank you for this time again that we've had to worship you. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your promises to us, your Holy Spirit who guides us into all truth. I thank you for Christ who is the head of our body and to whom we grow together.
nourished by Christ and his infinite storehouse of wisdom and knowledge. Lord, I pray that they, this morning, those who hear this word would dwell upon Christ and not upon me. Lord, if there's anything that I've said that is contrary to your word, I pray that you would strike it from our minds, God. Lord, that you would protect us and preserve us according to your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.